You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of creating one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. The Right Process is brought to you by the Writer's Program at UCLA Extension, helping you reach your writing goals one page at a time. Enroll now at uclaextension.edu. Hello, my name is Jennifer Calogeris, and I am the author of the short fiction collection, Unruly Creatures. Jennifer Calogeris is a writer living in Los Angeles and the author of the short fiction collection, Unruly Creatures, and two young adult novels, most recently, Strays. She teaches short fiction and writing the young adult novel at UCLA Extension Writers Program, and she recently served as the writer-in-residence at the Annenberg Community Beach House. In this collection rife with humor and pathos, alienated characters struggle to subvert, contain, control, and even escape their bodies. A teenage girl grapples with hair grown wild. A biologist finds herself in love with a gorilla. A prisoner yearns to escape her biological destiny. Dark humor and magical realism put into sharp relief the everyday trials of Americans in a story collection that asks, in what way are we more than the sum of our parts? This collection took me forever to write. When I say the book took seven years to write, I would actually say that four of those years were spent writing, and probably two and a half were spent editing the project in various degrees. It started when I was in graduate school at the University of British Columbia. I was working towards my MFA in creative writing, and I was taking a short fiction course with an amazing Canadian short fiction writer named Juji Gartner, and she really inspired me to write this book. So I think five of the stories from my MFA uh, are included in this collection. During the course of the seven years that I wrote this book, I actually wrote and published an entirely separate book. So that is really how long the process was for me. And then when I finished publishing that, I went back to the short fiction uh, to really make it a cohesive collection. I had published a number of the stories in various literary journals. Um, I was getting a bit of momentum. I find that when I am not writing, I'm not happy. So I often am working on multiple projects at the same time. The stories began calling to me and kind of tugging at me and beckoning me to write them. I was having very vivid dreams at the time, and a lot of these stories were inspired by surreal, bizarre dreams. I had two kids during the course of writing this collection, which can lend itself to all sorts of strange thoughts, uh, fears, worries, bizarre behavior, and they're all in the book. As I said, the process did change over time. Once I had multiple stories written, some were getting published. They had their own editor at the literary magazine where they were being published who wanted certain changes, so I would be working on those changes while still trying to forge ahead creating new stories. I tend to write in fits and spurts, which is possibly the worst way to write. Uh, Once in a while, I do get away for a weekend, 
and I am amazed at how much I can get done in 48 hours of continual work. But I do get so much done when you are focused and doing nothing else but writing. Unfortunately, my life currently does not allow for that luxury. I have to get up, I have to get the kids off to school, and then I do make sure I sit down at my computer for at least two hours a day. Sometimes I am sitting and staring at my computer, wondering when those two hours will end, and other times I'm quite productive. Another thing I do to economize my time is I will print out pages that I am wanting to edit, and I'll just have them in my bag with me. So I end up editing in carpool line. I end up editing in my car, waiting for kids' sports stuff to end. I always have something with me so that I can always have that forward trajectory. And it adds up. A little bit of editing in your car all week adds up to a lot of editing in a given month. It stressed me out a lot to think of this work as a collection because I kept thinking, oh, I have to write more stories and more stories. And every time I finished one, I'd think, I'm not there yet. This is not a collection. These are just a smattering of stories. I think it wasn't until some of my graduate school friends got together post-graduate school and formed an online writer's workshop where we workshopped each other's writing. We passed around stories once a month. We'd all read them, and then we'd not do line-by-line edits, but talk about global aspects of the piece. And my friend said, your stories are, are emerging with a theme that I wasn't aware of as I was writing them, but they are surreal. I think every story but two involve animals at the forefront of the stories. A lot of them are about alienated main characters. A lot of them are about the human-animal relationship, whether or not it's symbiotic. Once I had a theme established, I felt like I could take the new stories in a more directed route and I was writing thinking about theme, which is different when you're just writing without thinking about theme. And I did add a couple of stories that were dissimilar to what I had been writing because I thought that would be just a little more interesting to not have the stories be too repetitive. I do love collections that are cohesive, but I also want each story to stand on its own. So that's what I've tried to do. The very last story I added to this collection, I think, falls under a new umbrella of fiction that's being published now urgently, which is sort of, I call it eco-lit, that addresses concerns of global warming and how climate is changing and where humans stand in all of this, where their responsibility is and how we're going to deal with it. Another thing some of my stories have in common is their throwback to fairy tales. A couple of them are reinterpolated fairy tales. They take the fairy tale trope and I've reinvented them to some extent. For example, my last story in the collection, Unruly, is about a girl coming of age and she wakes up one day to find that her hair is growing out of control, not just the hair on her head. And she lives with her mother, who is a scientist. She studies frogs. And she's undergoing this change from a girl into womanhood so publicly that there's no denying it. And it's her exploration of how this change takes over her life. My greatest creative challenge working in this collection was to find a good balance between humor and pathos. I think that is such a delicate balance that I wanted to achieve. These stories are really dark, 
but I also really wanted them to be funny. And to find the right note that hits both of those aspects was very challenging. For those of you who glamorize a writer's life thinking that they're always writing, it's not the case. The creative aspect of writing happens maybe 20% of the time, and it's the revision that's happening 80% of the time. I would say that's a fair ratio. For me, I like to read through my work looking for one specific thing. So maybe I'm reading through a draft solely focused on character development, or I'm reading through a draft solely focused on plot. I think focusing on one aspect gives you a bit of tunnel vision and it makes for a stronger lens to see your story. Another thing I like to do is to read my work out loud. It slows me down, it slows my brain down, and it lets me really feel the language that I'm using and see if it's musical or not. And that can only happen if you're actually reading out loud. So my dogs get to hear a lot of my stories before anyone else. Sometimes I give my work to my mother. She is excellent at grammar. I call her the grammar and punctuation police, and I need her to arrest me all the time because I make a lot of editing errors, so I give it to her for that. My father's also a writer, and so I will give it to him for more global aspects of the work, and we discuss that as well. When you write a novel, you have sort of moments of peaks and valleys, highs and lows. You're building to a crescendo, which is the ultimate climax of your novel, and then finishing the story. For a short fiction collection, I have 11 stories, and I needed to place them in a way that would help tell a bigger overarching story. So I think that was one of the most challenging parts of editing was picking the perfect order for the story. I spent hours and hours moving pieces like moving Lego bricks, changing the order around until I found something that felt right. I do have a couple stories that deal with people's direct relationships with animals. I didn't want to put those two together. I have a couple that deal with young adult narrators. I didn't want to put those two together. I have two more straightforward stories, so I wanted to separate those. So I think there really is an unspoken art about placement and order when it comes to short fiction collections. My collection was edited multiple times in multiple ways. Um, so of course there was my own self-editing, which you can do for a while, but then it's time to release your work and let other people take a look at it because oftentimes I think the writer doesn't see some of the most glaring uh, issues in their own writing and it takes someone else looking at that and giving you the feedback. So I did have a writer's group, an online writer's group that worked with my pieces and gave very honest and open feedback, very helpful feedback. Each time I had a piece published with a literary magazine, the editor would give me intense feedback that I would use to change the story. Sometimes I th can think of a couple instances where I did not include their edits in the collection. I sort of reverted back to what the story was. I do need to handwrite my revisions. I need to physically have them with me, and it also makes it easy to take them places, as I said. Short fiction collections are notoriously difficult to publish. When I first began speaking with other writers, other friends who are writers about this process, they said, don't even submit it to an agent unless you have a completed novel, which I did not have. 
So I went slow with it. I took my time. I researched short fiction collections that I admired. I looked up their agents. I looked up their publishing houses. And ultimately, I decided that this collection really needed an independent voice to publish it. My first two novels were both young adult novels published with indie presses, and I had amazing experiences. And I liked the intimacy that an independent press has to offer. So I began my search sending out the manuscript to independent presses exclusively. I did not seek out an agent for this work. It is not a straightforward collection. It is very surreal, off-kilter. I needed someone who shared that vision to publish my work and someone who would support that vision. And West Virginia University Press really was a perfect match for me. I worked with an editor, Abby Freeland, who also gave me editing marks. Their method of publishing is interesting and different. I hadn't yet worked with a university press, and in their particular case, they need to bring the work to the board and have the board's approval before moving ahead with publication. She had two separate readers who needed to give the project a thumbs up and give editing marks. So that happened, and I had to make those changes before giving the project to the board to read. So once the board had three professors' seals of approval, they were able to push it forward, and then we went back to a working relationship with Abby finalizing the edits for the book. And that's when, as a writer, once that process is over, you really let it go. They were nice enough to let me have some input on the cover, and I absolutely love my cover. I remember the email I sent to the art director there, and I said, I just really want it colorful and loud, and I want an orgy of animals. And if you've seen the cover, you know that they definitely delivered. Once I let go of the book, it's in the publisher's hands to make connections with reviewers, to send out ARCs, which are the advanced review copies, to reviewers, to send it to newspapers, to send it to other media outlets. I actually like taking a hand in all that. I like the contact with the bloggers. I like reaching out and telling people about my books because I get very excited about them. So I involve myself as much as they will let me, and I feel like we found a good balance. Hopefully it won't take another seven years for me to write my next book. However, I do feel like the slowness of this process, I learned that putting away your work is really important. Taking a break from what you're writing, doing something else entirely, and then coming back to that work, you see it with such fresh eyes, and you're able to approach it with a newness that I think infuses the writing with new energy if you were feeling lost. So I would say to anyone out there who is struggling to get a piece of work done, sometimes you can work through it, and that's great. But if you're really hitting a wall, I think putting it away for a while and then coming back to it will really change your approach to writing. I'm going to read a short excerpt from the first story in my collection, which is titled The Sound of an Infinite Gesture. Things were getting weird in the gorilla habitat. Last week, Conga, the 300-pound Rwandan primate, one of only four gorillas in the world who could sign over 500 words, gave the middle finger seven times to a wide-eyed group of kids who had waited over half the school year to visit the Institute for Privileged Primates. The first flip bird was aimed at the kids in the center of the observation window. 
The second and third came in unison, arms outstretched to full wingspan, like a conductor bringing the string section to a sudden crescendo. Number four wove under her muscular leg a sneak attack, which seemed to be directed at the only girl in the room shielding her eyes. Teachers who were lined up behind their kids at the back of the room hadn't had a moment to digest five and six before Conga built up to the grand finale, her massive hands starting out low and then rising like a rocket ship piloted by drunken astronauts. The gorilla habitat closed for the rest of the day. Jan should have known there was going to be trouble. On her first day working with Conga three months ago, Jaeger flagged her down with his shovel. Good luck. I hear she's a real shrew. Jan just shrugged. What did he know anyway? But Jaeger couldn't let it go. She could kill you if she wanted to. But Conga didn't ever scare her. None of the apes she'd work with had. After a week of whistle training to rehabilitate Conga's misuse of her middle digits, Dr. Walker, the head of IPP, gave the all-clear to resume school visits. Good morning, everyone. I'm Jan Albud, and I'm Conga's trainer, Jan told the latest batch of school kids. Jan had gotten into this business to observe, not be observed, so presentation days were challenging. She spoke into the small microphone clipped to her collar as she addressed the kids through the shatterproof glass of the gorilla enclosure. Where's the monkey? shouted a squat boy, his greasy nose plastered to the observation window. Well, she's technically not a monkey. She's a gorilla in the Homididae family, and she shares over 98% of our DNA. If you look carefully, you'll notice she's in her favorite hiding spot. Does anyone see her? Voices quieted as the kids scanned the enclosure. Should we have her come out? asked Jan. The audience brought their hands together, clapping and chanting the gorilla's name in a persuasive cheer. Jan reached into her sweatshirt pocket and pulled out a chocolate pudding cup. Within seconds, the lumbering gorilla crawled out from under a trampoline and knuckle-walked right up to Jan, grabbed the snack, squeezed the container until the top popped open, and downed it like a jello shot. She then crushed the plastic in her fist and threw the empty container on the floor. The crowd went wild with applause. Conga's favorite item was the flat-screen TV that Dr. Walker had purchased, dipping into funds allocated for the fragile spider monkeys. He said a TV would allow Conga to watch reality shows so she can be hip to modern lingo. We want a gorilla who can speak to teens. So far, she had refused to watch anything other than Turner Classics, which did nothing to help her reach Dr. Walker's goal of accelerated evolution. Midway through the presentation, Jan was relieved that none of the kids had made references to last week's finger episode. How do you think you say banana in sign language? A little girl made what could have been interpreted as a lewd gesture, her attempt at signing the fruit. Good guess, Jan corrected the girl, and then pointed up with an index finger, then brought her other hand to the tip of her finger and pretended she was peeling a banana. The crowd tried it as well. She then taught them how to sign apple, an orange. Which fruit do you want? Jan directed her sign to Conga, who was now spinning in circles, signing the word dizzy. The gorilla came to a stop, thought it over, then brought her right hand in a closed palm up to her jaw and turned it, giving the sign for apple. The children were riveted. Jan then went through a series of emotions, asking Conga how she felt today. The gorilla answered she was tired, making a sign that looked like she was sweeping cobwebs off her thick hips. Three lucky students were chosen to ask Conga a question, which Jan interpreted using sign language. What's your favorite game? hide and seek. 
Who's your best friend? Jan. Do you have any pets? Yes. Conga, what kind of pet do you have? Jan signed. Conga brought a fist to her chin and extended two fingers in a coquettish wave. What she's saying is she has a frog. Jan walked past the art corner to a small terrarium sitting on the counter next to the sink. She slid the mesh covering toward her, picked up the frog, and carried it back over to Conga, who held it delicately with both hands. Do any of you have pet frogs? Six arms reached for the ceiling. What's its name? A freckled-faced girl asked. Conga calls her Leg, and you love Leg, don't you? Jan signed as she walked towards her audience. The presentation was almost over. All she had to do was urge them to sign an invisible petition with their fingers in the air to take care of the environment so that gorillas would always have a place to live and her job would be done. They'd wave goodbye and get funneled to the gift shop where those who came prepared could shell out $100 for an original watercolor by the famous primate. Those who didn't have the money went home, at the very least, with a $3 keychain depicting Conga signing the word love. Um, what's the monkey doing? Jan turned around. Conga had placed Leg on the ground and was standing on her red plastic chair. As if she had been stung by a wasp, she performed a wrestling move known as the corkscrew splash, leaping up off the chair and spinning in a circle in the air before landing belly first. She quickly rolled aside to give her audience a peek at the animal that was no longer technically a frog, but a green Play-Doh pancake. The Right Process is produced by me, Charlie Jensen, at the UCLA Extension Studio. Audio support and editing were provided by Jamie Moss, Eileen Keegan, and Hannah Sutherland. For more information on the Writers Program, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.